If the rest of you want to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 14, is where we're going to camp out this morning, and um, we'll be staying primarily just right there. So for those of you that want to grab your Bibles and make sure we're just going to do move verse by verse through that passage. And as you're turning there, I just confess to you that I am one that can believe in a lie. Believe it or not, I can be lied to and I can fall for it. You know, this week I was lied to or maybe even kind of tricked, right? Someone tried to trick me this week. I'm trying to sell an old truck, a 1997 Ford F-150 V6, 121,000 miles. Anybody want to buy it? No, but anyway, but so I'm trying to sell that truck this, this week. Is somebody like they, I put it on Craigslist, and so you have to put your phone number there, you know. So they shot me a text, and they put on there, hey, I'm interested in the truck. You know, can I, when can I come see it? And I'm like, I'm not home right now. You just come see it, you know, we'll, let me know. We'll set up a time. And then I get a text back, and the text says, hey, send me your, um, your email address and this. Uh, I'll, I'll send you money, and then I'll, when that money goes through, then I'll send someone over to look at the truck. And I was like, come on, man. I was like, something is sitting well with me. You know, I've, I'm old, but not like that, right? And this one is sitting well. And I was like, this isn't right. No one gives money, especially an old truck. I'll give you money, and then I'll come see it. What? Like, so like sometimes when people lie to me, it's like, now, now you're insulting my intelligence because you're not even convincing. Do you actually think that I'm actually going like, to do that? And because it was sitting uneasy in my soul, in, in my heart, I called someone that always sells things online, and I said, I'm right to believe that this is stupid, right? Oh, yeah, this is, they're going to hack into your PayPal account, and they're going to hack into your things. And, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. So the next text I get is three question marks, and I just ignore that. And, you know, Ian and I were up at Snow Valley riding our mountain bikes anyway, so no, ain't nobody got time for that, as someone once said, right? And so... Some of those lies that you and I are, are told, some lies that are kind of sent our way, some of those are like, what's going on in that person that they actually think that that's a believable statement or a believable idea, right? But then I think to myself, the reason why that person or those type of people actually say these things is because somebody actually does believe it that somebody actually does. That they've probably told that lie before and somebody is actually gullible, gullible enough or naive enough, some of us want to say stupid enough, to go ahead and to believe those lies. And as I started to think about that a little bit more, I was studying this passage of Scripture and I came across a phrase that's the title of this message called mind poison. Because some people's minds are so poisoned by lies and falsehoods and deception that we no longer do well distinguishing between truth and reality. And I know that there are a lot of things that sound silly to us, sound like they're insulting our intelligence, but then there's other lies that sound really good. And there's other things that sound logical and that sound based on, on, on reason and logic and history and that there's sometimes there's evidence that points in a direction that would make us think that maybe this, this lie is true, and we have to delve deeper, and we have to look further, and we have to think more broadly, and we have to pray more consistently. Because in the mind of the believer in Jesus, and I know this next statement is probably going to throw some people off, because 
not every person that is a Bible-believing follower of Jesus would agree with this statement, and, and that's okay. And that's okay. But I've come to understand through the passage that I've asked you to turn to that the church is confronted with mind poison and God's own witness to the word of his grace. That those two things are constantly kind of coming our, our direction. That we are receiving lies, and if we believe those lies for a long enough period of time, I really believe that our mind becomes poisoned. And we are susceptible to further lies. I think that happens on an individual basis. I think that can happen in a family. And I don't think in this next statement will shock many of you. I believe that that's taking place across our nation. I think in large ways, our nation has been poisoned. The collective mind of America, I think, is continually being poisoned. Why do I say that? Because of the pattern that I'm going to talk to you about in just a little bit. We're at the tail end of a pattern that you see in Scripture and that you see all around us and that we see throughout history. We'll get to that in a little while. But first, I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Let's read that in its entirety, following along in your own Bibles, please. Now at Iconium, this is Paul and Barnabas, now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles when an attempt to may, was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and to Derbe and cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Working through this text, automatically the easiest observation in verse 1 is that the gospel reaches into and unites people from various ethnic and cultural backgrounds. That's what the gospel does, right? If the gospel is just plainly preached, plainly presented, without any trickery, without any shenanigans, without any add-ins or subtractions, if the gospel is just presented at face value, it in and of itself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as inspired by God, will have a uniting factor, will bring people together from various religious backgrounds, from various social economic backgrounds, from various cultural backgrounds. People from all different walks of life will kind of be funneled in and attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ as plainly presented without any biases or nuances or, 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 or spins or anything like that. Just plainly presented. That's what the gospel, that's what the gospel does. That's one of my kind of beliefs that a church that tries to reach a specific group that targets a specific section of its society is actually missing one of the greatest um, portions of the gospel itself. So if a church sets out and says, we're going to reach this kind of person, well, I think you're, you're hindering or you're putting a roadblock into what naturally takes place because all throughout the New Testament, you see that wherever the gospel is preached, people from multiple backgrounds, multiple perspectives, men, women, children, poor, rich, various, but they all seem to just come together and they find unity in this narrative, this story, this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So churches should be interracial, intergenerational, different social economic levels should be represented within a church and how it's moving forward and bringing unity among that type of diversity. And so that's one thing that we seek to do. But now, we need to be careful with that because one thing that can happen is that we can force people into different worship styles. I don't want to go off on this too far, but I do want to say that any church or denomination or group of churches should allow a variety of worship styles within its organization, within the Church of the Nazarene. We have that because there are some aspects of worship that are tied to historical culture, and we want to celebrate those. And we realize that people from various ethnic backgrounds have different styles of worship. The Church of the Nazarene in Africa does this differently. The Church of the Nazarene in Mexico does this differently. The Church of the Nazarene in Switzerland does this, well, kind of the same. Um, <laughs> and so you have these different flavors, right? And these different things going on, and we should have a celebration of that. Not only does the gospel reach into and unite people from various ethnic and cultural backgrounds, the mind of the believer within this context, as we are being drawn to the gospel, the mind of the believer can be poisoned to reject the teaching of that gospel. So as you and I are coming together, as I am teaching the Word of God to you, exposing the Word of God to you, confronting you with the Word of God, as I study it and read it on my own, and as I attempt to um, communicate this to you, I am human, you are human. We have the ability and sometimes the propensity to have a poisoned mind. Now I know one thing that happens as the preaching of the Gospel is, is, is being, being done, that what you are comparing to my words right now in this moment, you're, you're comparing my words with other message messages that you've heard. If you've been in the church for a long time, you've probably heard this passage preached on, you've probably done devotional work within this text, and you've been to Bible studies and done all kinds of things. This isn't the first time you've been confronted with Acts chapter 14, and so when you hear me telling you something, you're comparing that to what you previously heard. Now there's something called the law of first mention. The law of first mention says, whatever you hear about a biblical text or a philosophical idea or a cultural concept, whatever the first thing you hear, you will deem as true, and all else will be measured against it. And whatever disagrees with the first thing that you've heard, you will count as a lie. Well, that's very interesting that you and I would do that. But what if the first thing that you heard was actually inaccurate? What if what you came in here today thinking about Acts chapter 14 was actually an error? was actually a lie, was actually a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation? What if the person that first taught you this had an ulterior motive and was trying to convince you of something that perhaps wasn't true? So you and I are always susceptible to this. Something happens in our culture today that sometimes the newest thing is seen as the most valid because the old is old and the old is outdated and if you were taught this 20 years ago or your parents or your grandparents taught this, they were probably outdated, but we've moved forward culturally, we've moved forward historically and now we're in a new day in a new position and we need to think new and have new ideas and we need to reinterpret the Bible and we need to reinterpret the Bible into our current cultural context and so we dismiss what was in the past and believe because it's fresh or new that somehow it's more true. No, that's mind poison. Everything and every idea or every concept or every interpretation of Scripture needs to be rooted in reality, whether it's new, old, first, or last. 
when you heard it doesn't determine its validity as being true. The only thing that validates a statement for being true is, is it actually rooted in reality? And I know I just threw probably part of your, um, your freshman philosophy class at you, but so be it. You're smart people, you can do it. So the mind of the believer. So in verse 2 when it says, but the believing Jews, or the unbelieving Jews, excuse me, stirred up the Gentiles. Now these are assumed to be believing Gentiles because they're in the church and it follows what we learn in verse 1. So it's reasonable to believe that we're talking about believers. And then it says also that they poisoned their mind against the brothers, those people that they had come to call brothers, because they had now believed, and now that now they were finding unity, Jew and Gentile, and now they were referring to each other. Can you imagine first century Jew, Gentile, referring to each other as brothers? Here comes non-believers poisoning the minds of the Gentiles and pitting them against the people that they have now called brother. And so what does it mean to have a poisoned mind? This word throughout the New Testament is translated several different ways. In the King James, it is typically used to mean to entreat evil or to make the mind effectually evil. Wow, that's a big statement. So when a mind is poisoned by lies and falsehoods, the mind then is affected towards evil. That evil will look more attractive than truth. Huh. Lies will look more attractive than error. And if we've come to that place, when a lie is more attractive than the truth, our minds have been poisoned. Now, what does Luke, the author of the book of Acts, mean by our mind? You'll know that it's, you'll probably recognize this word, even if you don't know any Greek at all, the Greek word suke, which is where we get our word psych or psychology or our psychological well-being. So what had literally happened in Acts chapter 14 as the gospel was being preached and people were being, being united, that lies were presented to the brotherhood, to the church, and that, that their minds and their psychological well-being had been bent towards evil. And so they had been corrupted. They were psychologically poisoned to accept error over truth, and now their thinking and their activity among one another was bent towards evil. So they were united, then they were poisoned, and now they were bent towards evil. Now, thank the Lord that that's not all that was taking place in this church. Because in this church, we also had presented in verse 3. In verse 3, we learn that the Lord bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders. So in this group of people, this church, that were unified and believing in the gospel, and then someone had come and spread lies, and there was this mind poisoning, and so there was this psychological bend towards evil within this church. But then God Himself showed up. And God started doing miracles through the apostles, through the teachers, through the brothers. And God was being His own witness. God was presenting His own truth. So I started thinking to myself, in what ways, in what ways have you and I been poisoned? I started thinking about that. If you would go back to that last slide. Go back one, one slide, please. Keep going. I threw him a curveball. I, I went too fast. Go back. Right there. So what poisons the mind of the believer? 
I've placed on the screen just a few things that would need a sermon series unto themselves. But the misrepresentation of strange-sounding Bible verses. You would do yourself a favor to grab the book that's identified in, in that note, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. You, you, you would do great to, to read this. Now, I know that in the past, Dan Kimball has written some things that I don't agree with, but I think he nails it in this book. Okay? And remember, it's not always if we agree with 100% with what somebody says. Dan Kimball, 15 years ago, might have seen the church differently, wrote some things. I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But this book, he's nailing it. And in this book, he identifies that the Bible, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 22, states that there are unicorns. So some people will post funny little pictures on, in, on social media saying, if you're a Christian, you must believe in unicorns. And everybody knows unicorns is a mythical creature. The Bible translates that word unicorns because the Hebrew word in that passage is literally one horn. That's, that's what the Hebrew word means there, one horn. You know any animals with one horn? Anybody ever seen a rhinoceros? Do rhinoceros exist? Okay. All right then. We can move on then right from that verse. What about selling your daughter into slavery? The Bible literally says... If you sell your daughter into slavery, this is how you do it. Excuse me? <laughs> I have a 30-year-old wonderful daughter that I got to spend some time with this weekend. I'm not going to sell her into slavery. But am I glad she has a job? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we're not farmers. And in those days, majority of people were farmers. But when their land wasn't good or they had a bad season of crops or the weather wasn't sufficient to grow enough, sometimes they needed to take their family members and have them go work down the road where the farm was a little bit better and things were going a little bit better so they could have food for their, their family. It wasn't slavery. It was called getting a job. But if your farm wasn't doing well in the, in, back in, in those ancient times, you didn't go down to the temporary agency and fill out an application and go get a job. It didn't work that way. You had to go find someone that actually had something to do and... That's how you did it. Even Jesus seems to get a little weird in the New Testament. It says that if your eye causes you to sin, poke it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So many people that do not believe like you and I believe, they will say, well, if you're really a Christian, you would mutilate your body. But that's what Christians believe. Every time you commit a sin, mutilate your body. Well, obviously, that if you look at the thing, in that day, a Jewish rabbi used something called hyperbole. It was called rabbinic hyperbole. Many teachers use it today, and that was a hyperbolic statement. I can't say that word, but anyway, it was that. And I make a living talking, but anyway. So we have to deal with those. In this passage, this book takes you through a lot of those kinds of things, right? And he, he, he really does it. And by the way, the first part of the book gives you a wonderful summary of what the Bible is in its entirety. So if you're new to the Bible, at least grab this book and read the front end of it. It'll give you a wonderful story, a wonderful summary of what the Bible is. Now go ahead and go to that further down the road there. Okay, number right there, cultural memes. Now a meme, I know you understand, is a picture with a funny saying. No, that's not a meme. That's a meme <laughs> really is what a culture repeatedly does. Okay, so what is repeated within a culture, right? That is what's called a cultural meme. A lot of times we're doing things based upon our culture and we've never really investigated why. We don't know. I guess my kids are just raised that during Thanksgiving you take the turkey, put it in a bag, flip it upside down, and put it in the oven. Now my grandma never did it that way. 
My grandmother had it right side up, so she thought, and she never covered it or put anything. She used a turkey baster. I don't know why. Somewhere around there, somebody. But there's all these things that cultures do, right? And growing up in Southern California, I got exposed to all different kinds of culture. Growing up when my friend said, you want some water? Yeah, I thought, take some water. And he gave me Kool-Aid. And I was like, bro, that's, that's Kool-Aid. He goes, no, it's water. Huh? It's water with sugar and some other poison in it, I guess. I don't know, some chemicals. It makes it taste really, really good. My favorite was cherry. You didn't need to know that. But there are these cultural memes. And sometimes, based upon your culture, you're just doing things because it's what we do. Well, is it a good idea? I really don't know. And sometimes memes can poison our minds to what is really true because we've always done it as people that way. And so we just kind of do it. And if you do it differently, you must be weird or wrong because you don't do what I do. Next slide, please. Another thing that poisons our mind is secular or atheistic educators as they placate the ignorance of their students. That is huge. That's a massive problem. Some very popular examples are these two men, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. If you want to know what's being taught and who the mind shapers are, there's called the New Atheists. They're pretty powerful in the academic world. And so they both wrote books. Richard Dawkins wrote the, Dawkins wrote the book, The God Delusion, in which he basically says that to believe in God, you have to go mad. But when pushed, when pushed by someone his equal intellectually, his arguments fold like the proverbial cheap tent. And he cannot argue with somebody that's his level, and he cannot argue with someone that understands his argument. But he'll placate the ignorance of his students and sound very convincing. Same with Sam Harris as he wrote his book, The End of Faith. Within his book, he talks about faith was for humanity in its infant stage, but now that we've grown up, you no longer need that. But when pushed, his understanding of faith is not what the Bible says faith is. And when pushed, again, with people his equal, that will read his material and submit his material to scrutiny, again, he fails every time. So we have a lot of mind poison, don't we? Well, along with that mind poison, we do have God. Excuse me, there was one more. An overemphasis on the autonomous self. For the sake of time, that just means an overemphasis on you as the individual. That you deem something to be true or false based upon your own internal ex expectations and you've just settled in, this is me, this is my truth, this is my narrative, and I'm going to live that out, and I'm going to base everything true by my own circumstances, and that's just a poisoned way to live. So along with those things, we also have the, the Lord bearing witness in verse 3. Well, how does God do that? What are the things in which God uses to bear witness to His own, the Word of His, the word of his grace? There's a quick list. The list goes something like this. Evidence for the resurrection. If you study the resurrection, I believe that there's plausible arguments to make it reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where I stake my entire religious perspective. There's the historicity of the Bible. The Bible passes every historical test that's ever been run through. In fact, what scientists would do with any historical document, it's called the historical method. The Bible passes with flying colors far beyond any other historical document. If you can't believe in the Bible based upon you don't think it's real history, you can't believe in anything. Because all other historical documents are far less than the Bible. Also fulfilled prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies are a major portion of why we believe in the Scriptures. 
A lot of people took the Bible as to be nonsense until 1948 when Israel became a nation again, and then everybody started to think, oh no, the Bible perhaps is true, because in 1948 Israel became a nation again, and it hadn't been one since A.D. 70. Amazing, isn't it? There's also personal experiences. Again, we can't base our life totally on our personal experiences, but we do have personal experiences with the Lord, and they help validate when placed with the rest of this list. We also have the Bible's continued accuracy in depicting human nature. It's amazing to me how much I can read the Bible, look at the news, and say, yep, the Bible tells me that humans act like that, and I'm included. And then we also see the basic wisdom of the Bible, even as it is applied to non-believers throughout the Bible. There's a ton of things that have shaped various cultures across human history, various forms of law, various forms of democracy, various forms of justice and equality, and all of those kinds of things. The Bible is continually used. So because we've both had, we have both, we're confronted with both mind poison and God's own witness of his word, then what happens is division. Division. Division happens because we have truth and error. And whenever you have truth and error represented in the same place, you're going to draw lines. Some people are going to believe in one thing and other people are going to believe in another and we're going to have division. And what happens when we have division? We have these three things happen every time. You can see this playing out in every day in the news right before you. We have a belief, then we have mind poison, we've been corrupted, and then we have division, and then because we're divided, we treat each other harshly. And the news isn't news anymore. The news is just how rotten the other side is and how bad we should treat them. And so we have harsh treatment, and that's where, and that's where we live. But in verses 6 and 7, we notice that though Paul and Barnabas fled, they did not reject the church or the mission to preach the gospel. Why did they not do that? Why did they stick with the mission to preach the gospel? Because that was going to be the unifying factor. That was going to be what was going to keep people together. Because the gospel preached is, brings unity to the people, and there has to be this fight continually focusing back to the gospel. Every preacher that I know is tempted to be distracted and to go off into other areas and do other things and address other things. We have to stay central to the gospel because the gospel is what unifies us. The gospel is where we can find God's witness. So with all this in mind that I've thrown at you this morning, here's the personal challenge. I challenge you to accept the fact that your mind is susceptible to being poisoned and make a commitment to learn all that you can when faced with puzzling issues. So if something sounds confusing to you, lean in. Read more. Talk more. Listen more. Research more. Process more. Dive in. Find different opinions. Find all the information that is humanly possible for you to find. The more confusing, the harder work you need to do to gain an understanding. Don't just believe the first thing that you hear. Don't just believe that which connects to what you've always heard. Don't just believe what connects with your political persuasion. Don't just believe what, per, what goes with your own personal isolated experience. Continue to study, continue to research. And as a church, if we would do that individually, collectively, because, though, because of all these things that can poison our mind, they, some of them seem unrelenting. That we need to live in community with one another, helping each other stay rooted in the witness of his, the word of his grace. That's where we as the church need to help each other. 
because we're coming from all different backgrounds and all different ideas, various political persuasions represented in our congregation. And left to myself, I am susceptible to being turned and bent towards evil. And so are you. And so we need each other. We need to be in church. I believe it is a lie from the pit of hell that says the church is unnecessary. Because if you can get us separated and isolated, we will be more prone to lies and mind poisoning. But together, if we keep bouncing ideas off each other, if we keep calling people, hey, I got this weird text, what do you think? No, don't do that, he's trying to rip you off. Thank you. Hey, I read this in the news. Hey, I saw this in a book. Hey, I saw this in a whatever. We need to be collectively helping each other. Thank you.